0: Well, good morning. Welcome to FCBC Walnut. It's a a joy to be back with you. I've been uh, traveling a little bit for conferences, and I miss Mother's Day. I'm sad about that. So I want to say a happy belated Mother's Day to all the spiritual aunties and spiritual mothers that helped raise me from this church through all the years. I wouldn't be where I am in Christ without you, without your love, without your guidance, without your patience. And so I want to say happy belated Mother's Day. Um... Thank you for sending me. That's the first thing I want to say being back. You know, thank you for sending me to two separate gatherings, two separate conferences. The first conference I went to was a training conference on, on, uh, with executive pastors on how to deal with the organizational side of the church. And as you know, as our church has grown and as we're trying to learn how to organize, there is the preaching and the counseling aspect. But something that, that I'm not really good at is the organizational side. And so you guys have sent me, I don't know if you guys know that, and and I've been learning and benefiting and learning to like the organizational stuff. And so don't be surprised if I delegate more of the preaching uh, in the days to come so I can focus on how to organize us uh, going forward as an English congregation. Um, and then secondly, you know, I was so encouraged just to be, a, be um, this last week uh, on the East Coast with... Uh, 25 other English lead pastors of Chinese heritage churches. And when you talk about English congregation, you're talking about multicultural and multi-ethnic and um, different contexts. and. All to say, I want to say that, you know, really encouraged by what God is doing through our church. Our future is bright. Our present is bright because of all of you as faithful members. We have a great senior pastor, a great team, and I was greatly encouraged. And that leads me, you know, to our our vision. You know, as I'm talking with these other uh, English lead pastors of healthy uh, Chinese heritage churches, you know, they're leading their English congregations forward. Um, it really reminds me of where God has given us this beautiful vision. And our vision is legit. Our vision is is where I, we believe we need to go. So uh, as a vibrant church of disciple makers that reproduces vibrant churches, we want to continue to challenge ourselves and to seek the lord's guidance and the spirit's help to love passionately god and people people of all ethnicities and cultures that god would bring to us but love passionately to live authentically in our generation uh, as genuine disciples and actually our our current Sermon series that we're going to go into is really going to tackle these two. How to love God and people passionately and how to live authentically as genuine disciples in a world that is not naturally friendly to Christianity. And then to give generously and to go courageously. And so that's on your handout, but that's where we're going to go today. Okay. So today we have two sermons. And just bear with me. You'll understand where we're headed. Okay. We're starting a new series. And so we need to introduce the Psalms of Ascents. What are they? Right? Psalm of Ascent. What are they? Uh, how do Christians apply them? And then we're going to go into our actual sermon, which is Psalm 120. So, so let me start with that. The title of today's message is Sojourners in a Foreign Land. We are. Sojourners in a foreign land. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are called as ambassadors for Christ. We are everyday missionaries called into our communities, our homes, our workplaces, our campuses for the kingdom and for the king. And, and that's Psalm 120. So the title of the message is for the actual exposition. But we need to be, begin by looking at what are the Psalms of Ascent? And so people describe these differently. Some people say they are the Psalm of Ascent, plural. Some people say they are Songs, plural, of Ascent. Right? So don't worry about that. Whatever your Bible says, plural, singular, just say Psalms of Ascent. And this is Psalms 120 to Psalm 134. And every language congregation... In our church, we'll be preaching through the Psalms of Ascent for the next 15 weeks or so. The Psalms of Ascent. And what does this mean? What are they? right? Well, in Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, in your Bibles, when you see this this headline or this subheading, Psalms of Ascent, or some of your translations say Songs of Ascent, in the Hebrew, it's this word, shar hama ha'aloth. Right, Hama aloth, and shur means song, and I know I'm not pronouncing it like, you know, very well, but shur basically means song, and mahaloth means step or stair, and the idea is songs that you sing as you go along the way, as as you're on a journey, as you're ascending one step a, a time towards Zion or towards Jerusalem, towards the place of worship, towards God. You're singing songs that remind you of Yahweh, remind you of your deliverance, remind you of your exodus, remind you of who God is because you live in a land that is foreign. You live in a land that does not worship God. Now, some, some have, uh, some have referred to, uh, the, the Psalms of Ascent as Songs of Ascent because they see these Psalm 120 to 134, these 15 Psalms as one unit. And there's different views, but the view we're taking is that these were songs sung by Jewish pilgrims as they travel to Jerusalem every single year to celebrate three major festivals. And that's the festival of Passover the festival of Pentecost, and the Day of Atonement, which we know as Yom Kippur. Right? So these three major festivals was when people scattered all around uh, all around the region, they would travel, these Jews, faithful Hebraic Jews would travel to Jerusalem okay, to celebrate these festivals, and they would sing these songs along the way. Now James Montgomery Boyce, he explains, and this is awesome, he said that Joseph and Mary... That's Jesus' parents. Joseph and Mary would have sung these songs as they traveled with, with Jesus as a child and as an adolescent and as a teenager to Jerusalem to celebrate these festivals. And that means that our Lord and Savior, Jesus, would have sang these songs. Now, that's Old Testament. That's the Old Covenant context. That's the Old Testament context. So how should we as Christians apply these psalms? Right? So how should we as Christians apply these songs? And the answer is, one step at a time, a long view of discipleship. You see, following Jesus in this world is not instant. It's not you get converted unto Christ, and all of a sudden, all your sins go away, all your sin problems go away, and, and all of a sudden, you know, the world is easy, and you just follow Jesus, and the rest of your life is just heaven, Right? And then you get to heaven. That's not really how it works. The Christian life is a struggle. It's a battle. Being an everyday missionary is a battle. And so it's a long view of discipleship. That as you live in a foreign land, you are reminded that discipleship is one step at a time. It's slow. It's messy. It's not easy. And so Eugene Peterson, I don't know if you've heard of that name, uh, Eugene Peterson in 1980, so I'm not good at math, but how many decades is that? Four decades? Is that right? Four decades? 1980. I wasn't born until 1981. Right, so, I, so actually, I'm not a millennial. I'm pre-millennial in my eschatology and in my birth. Uh, but 19, just there, just right there, right? But 19, 1980. Right. Eugene Peterson, he wrote this book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And the subtitle is Discipleship in an Instant Society. And even though written four decades ago, the application of his book speaks to our, our instant gratification mindset today. And so all of our pastors or most of our pastors are reading this book in preparation for our sermons, but I just want to share with you one paragraph or one idea, one quote, one pericope from Eugene Peterson. He says this, 1980 he wrote this. Okay, He says, in our kind of culture, anything, even news about God, can be sold if it is packaged freshly. <clears throat> but when it loses its novelty, it goes on the garbage heap. There's a great market for religious experience in our world. There is little enthusiasm for patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. And so just think about that. I mean, isn't that our society today? You know, Christianity can be freshly packaged and sold if it's easy, if it's overnight, if it's, hey, read this book and all of your sin struggles will go away, Attend this five week class or, or ten week course or just take these five steps. And that's how you become a ma- mature Christian or, or evangelize in these four ways. And you know what? You'll just be generating conversions or you're, you'll grow your church exponentially by taking these five steps. But when we, when we look at the Christian life, it's relationships, right? Disciple making is relational. And, and since when has relationship been, you know, five steps? You know, try that in your marriage. Right i mean it 's always been the messiness of going through life together, struggling together, seeing the ugliness of the human heart. the more intimate the relationship, the more sins get exposed, and the reality of how desperately we need Christ and how we need the gospel becomes a reality, and the more we become dependent on God, the more we, we cry out for our Lord and that 's what the Psalms does for us okay and Peterson goes on and he explains, but I'll paraphrase it into our context today. He says, we've imported, and so I don't have a slide for this, we've imported the instant mindset into spiritual growth. Like, read your Bible once a day, pray for 30 minutes, and you'll overcome your sins in one month. Well, we know that that, that doesn't work this way, right? Or go to church, join a community group, attend a Bible study, uh, Bible study class, and you will increase your spiritual growth by 70%. Let me ask you, how do you even measure spiritual growth by percentage? Right? You can't. Right? How do you even measure Christ-like growth? You see, discipleship in a, is not a weight loss boot, boot camp. It's not input that generates output. It's not like a workout program. In a workout program, if you eat less and you work out in a certain, uh, reg, you know, certain whatever daily exercise routine, you will lose weight or you will put on muscle. But that's not how discipleship works. Discipleship Peterson explains is a long obedience in one direction, in the same direction. And the Psalms of Ascent remind us that Christian discipleship entails following Jesus one step at a time, one step towards steadfastness and perseverance. So with that in mind, that's the introduction. We could end the sermon right there, right? Let's pray. But um, take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 120. Psalm 120. And and we are going to have a shorter exposition today, but we will have exposition nonetheless. Psalm 120. Psalm 120. And the first thing we're going to see, point number one, is surrounded by lies. The psalmist cries out to the Lord because he is surrounded by the lies of this world. Right? Let me read to you Psalm 120. We'll read all of it, then we'll take it you know, two points today. Psalm 120. The psalmist cries out, he writes, in my distress I call to the Lord. And he answered me, deliver me, O Lord, from the lying lips from a deceitful tongue. Verse 3. What shall be given to you? And what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree woe to me that I sojourn in Mishach, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace I am for peace but when I speak they are for war my goodness any of you love Israel in here I mean, it, it could, could a Jew in Israel say this today? They could, right? They, I am for peace. I am for shalom. But I'm surrounded by the Arab nations that are for war. I just want you to think of that. I mean, that's not where, where I'm going to go today. But just, just think of how real this is for us today. Even us and wherever you are in this world, right? That, that as Christians, we long for peace. But nations rage for war, for power, for prestige, for who has the upper hand. Corruption abounds. I mean, this psalm speaks right right at us, right? It kind of hits us right in the heart. But point number one this morning is surrounded by lies, verses 1 to 4. Psalm 120 begins in a distant land. And I want you to note that is when you go from Psalm 120 up to 134, you're getting closer to Jerusalem because that's that's their original journey. Wherever they came from, from the distant lands, they get closer to the homeland. Now, for you and I, we aren't marching towards Jerusalem. We are marching towards heaven. We are marching towards Christ. And we don't know when the Lord will take us home. But as we as we grow and we learn to cry out to God, the closer we get to God, The closer we see the reality of what God has called us to. So, Psalm one twenty, our hearts, like the psalmist, begin with distress because we we realize we are far from the place of God, right? We are, and and so they, they are far from Zion. A faithful Israelite in the original context finds himself surrounded by dishonesty and hostility. Why? Because he's far from the place of God and the place of worship, and the temple, and Jerusalem. Notice the psalmist says, In my distress I called out to you, and he answered me. This is a language of petition and prayer, but this is a language of encouragement that the Lord answered. Notice past tense in the original language. Past tense, and he answered. Means this person is someone following God. And this is this is someone who understands that our God answers prayers and he answered me. And he understands that he has a relationship with God. That he can talk to God and that God responds. Now notice verse 2. Verse 2 clarifies his prayer request. The psalmist is asking God to deliver him from the lies that surround him. Now, you notice that the psalmist is referring to any lie that would push us away from God. Notice in verse 2, it says, Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips from a deceitful tongue. Right? That's his distress. His distress is being surrounded by falsehood. His distress, if you will, is being surrounded by false advertising. But when you and I think of distress, we don't think of lies. Right, when someone lies to you, it does create discomfort, but that's not distress. When you and I think of distress, we think of a health emergency, or we think of the stock market crashing and all our finances going down the drain. Right? When we think of distress, you think of 911 distress call, distress call, or 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 someone's breaking to your home. It's a, it's a distress call. But I want you to think of what the psalmist, the person who is close to God. What is distressful for, for him is not having access to God's truth and knowing that he needs to cry out to God because he's constantly living in a secular society and world. But for you and I, that's become the normal. you know. And, and so, so this is challenging for me because sometimes what's normal for me is just to think of what society and the world tells me and it's almost like we have to discipline ourselves. We have to set that Google Calendar reminder beep, beep, you know, that kind of buzz to say, okay, it's time to pray. It's time to uh, reconnect with God. But notice the psalmist, he's saying, I need to constantly be crying out to God because because not having God's word in my life is distressful. Because he knows that he lives surrounded by lies. Now, Eugene Peterson, once again, he kind of explains, and I'm going to put it in our language, right? He, he refers to the lies of advertisers who promise their product will meet our need. And he brings up the example of entertainers. entertainers entertainment's good, you know, to a certain degree, but it offers you an escape from reality, right? You're stressed, well, don't worry about reality for a while. Just dive into this video game fantasy world or or dive into virtual reality or dive into a movie for a couple of hours. And, and if you want to know your end game, it's going to be three hours. And, and you know what? You know, just dive in there and forget about reality, right? And, and and your problems will go away, but you know that's not true. Or just 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 binge watch a Netflix series or, or something and, and, you know, you don't have to face reality. You don't have to face all of your emails or, or people for a while, right? Or politicians promise that they will change the problems of society and which no politician can it's way too complex way too hard right pharmaceutical companies promise a quick escape from pain and just to be clear there is a place for for medicine as part of god's common grace but here's the key that there's something missing in entertainment advertising politicians or pharmaceutical companies is that none of them are offering us christ that only christ can offer us the truth Only Christ can tell us who we are meant to be. Only Christ can anchor our identity and redefine who we are and who God wants us to be. Only Christ is the answer to our our depression, our anxiety, our distress. right? All of our problems in life, only Christ offers that. And so the psalmist, being in the Old Testament, he understands, deliver me, O Lord, Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D. But for you and I as New Covenant Christians, who's the Lord? The Lord is Jesus Christ. Right, so Christ is our Lord. Christ is the one who delivers us. Christ is the one we cry out to. Christ is what is missing in everything that the world offers us and saying this will take away your problems. As good as it may be or it may deliver you 50% from some type of pain, but ultimately apart from Christ there is nothing. Right, and so so the psalmist understands it. And in verse 3, poetically, he's saying what shall be given to you? what sh- what more shall be done to you you deceitful tongue and so the psalmist is saying that the liar so now he's entering a conversation with the lies of the world the secular world uh, who who hates god and is against god and not for god and the psalmist is saying that the liar will be destroyed by the sharp arrows sharper than the lie so in verse 3 he's he's challenging saying what more will be given to you 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 lying world you deceitful tongue. And so notice in, in in the next few verses, there is a contrast of God's arrows being the arrows of truth versus the arrows of the enemy being lies that pierce us, right? So let me give you a cross-reference. Now, just to keep it simple, okay, keep your Bibles open to Psalm 120, I will put the cross-reference overhead because I'm going to be going back and forth and you may get confused if you don't have Psalm 120 in front of you. But let me help you understand. Psalm 64, 2-4 to gives us insight of what, what, what these lies are, this deceitful tongue, this, this illustration of sharp, arrows right that you're going to see in verse 4 of our passage but in psalm 64 verses 2 to 4 the psalmist uses the metaphor of arrows to describe the bitter words of the wicked the words of the wicked are bitter they are bitter they hate god right and so so look at verse 2 of what's overhead it says hide me from the secret plots of the wicked meaning the wicked aren't going to tell you hey look this is really going to hurt you and draw you away from christ Instead, they're going to sell it to you through various lies. Hey, this will take away your pain. Here's the solution to your problems. But really, it's Satan covering up what you really need, which is the true medicine of the, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throng of ov- evildoers. Psalm 64, verse 3, who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows. That's where the psalmist in, in Psalm 120, he's picking up this, this metaphor of bitter words like arrows. And verse 4, shooting from ambush. You see that secret? Like ambush, it's like this, right? I'm hiding. Boom, I got you. It, it, it's, it's not straightforward. No advertiser is going to tell you that, that their product is really not going to fix your problems. right? No one's going to tell you that. But that's what the world is constantly selling you. They're selling you that you don't need Christ, that everything else in this world will, that, that a comfortable life, a, a new car, a wonderful car, you know, a certain lifestyle is going to take away your problems and give you happiness. And the psalmist understands that this is like ambush shooting from ambush at the blameless, shooting at him suddenly and without fear. And he understands he's surrounded by this, the world that he lives in, and he longs to go to the place of God where truth prevails and truth truth is proclaimed. Look at Psalm 120. Uh, Back in Psalm 120 now in our passage, the, the, the psalmist is saying God's word is sharper than the lies of men. The arrows of the Lord are like the warrior's arrows that will pierce the lies of the wicked. Now, let me read you verse 4 of our passage, Psalm 120. It says, a warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals uh, coals of the broom tree. Right. Notice in verse 4 the metaphor of God's burning judgment. So the psalmist refers to a broom tree as a source of firewood. You know, and, and, and this is crazy. I, I didn't know what a broom tree was. I was what's a broom tree? You know, I know, I know what a broom is. I, I know that's what the Lakers used to do in the finals when they, when they sweep people, you know, because they're that good. Uh, but, you know, I still have hope for the Lakers. We got the number fourth pick, right? Uh, well, that's a miracle. Is God not on our side? No, I'm just kidding. Um, but verse 4, you know, this this idea of a broom tree, what is a broom tree? So I looked it up, and it says that a broom tree is very well known to yield charcoal, meaning a broom tree would provide the best source of burning, a charcoal back then that would would be made from this broom tree wood. It helps you understand this imagery of glowing coals, of burning judgment. From God. And that's what he's saying. And in Psalms, this glowing, these glowing coals, they symbolize the judgment of God. Once again, let me give you a cross-reference to help you understand how I'm getting this interpretation so that you can learn how to interpret the Psalms, right? You kind of look at the Psalms. So, so where do we get this idea of God's word and the truth being the main focus? Well, Psalm 119 is all about God's word, and Psalm 120 is where we're at. So there's a little bit of context there, right? That you understand moving from Psalm 119 to Psalm 120. It is about God's word and his truth and his law being the truth. But, but now you look at Psalm 140 verse 10 and you're like, where's this burning idea? What does burning mean to the psalmist and throughout the Psalms? In Psalm 140 verse 10, it says, let burning coals fall upon them. And so when you put broom tree, creates charcoal, creates burning coals. You get the idea of where the psalmist is, is, is pulling his symbolic imagery and metaphors from. He says, let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into fire, that's God's judgment, and into miry pits no more to rise. So so when you combine the piercing arrows of God with the burning judgment of God, you see one key point that we understand even as New Testament Christians, that when we all stand before the judgment seat of God, he will judge every single human being by his word. His word will be the judgment criteria have you abided by my word have you obeyed my law or have you violated the word of god and we know that jesus christ ultimately perfectly obeyed the word and he is the word made flesh and so it's through christ through christ is the only way that we are delivered from god's judgment and from the lies of men it is through christ but you you kind of see how it all comes together now now this leads us to point number two Point number two is not only was he surrounded by lies, but he understood that he was surrounded by hostility. And beloved, that is the world we live in. So how does this relate to us? immediately? Let me give you some upfront application before we dive in so, so that you understand how how uh, relevant the Old Testament is to us today. Is that this world is antagonistic towards Christians. So, so when you look at the liberal agenda... Uh, even even in American society, when you look at the moral decline, we shouldn't get surprised or even offended. You know, when people when people espouse anti-Christian, anti-God, uh, you know, morals and and uh, you know, relativistic or or, or, or postmodern, post-postmodern, and they're pushing against Christian truth, we shouldn't be offended. That's the world we live in. You know, that's the biblical world of the Old Testament saints. That is the biblical world that Paul lived in. That, that is the New Testament world. This world hates God, even if they don't know that they hate God. This world hates Christ, even if they say they love Jesus as a person. Right? Because once Jesus wants lordship over them, so, so we should not be surprised or even offended when the world hates Christianity. But that gives us the proper mindset of a missionary. Right? When you're a missionary, you go into a foreign land. You understand that, that you don't have the same type of comforts. You're trying to reach people. So you're willing to accommodate because you know you're already going up against the grain. I think that's a difference in America. We kind of take for granted what our forefathers set for us. We kind of take for granted the Judeo-Christian values. And then now we, we expect that that's a right. But you talk to Christians in foreign lands and, and they don't see these rights. Right? So, so we need to begin to, to learn from our Canadian and our European evangelicals, if you will, that they're living in the post-post post anti-Christian world. But a, but a Western thinking. And, 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 and you know, you, you don't you just can't expect, you know, you can't expect the government to uphold pro-life or, or or things like that. Right? That's what we in the church desire and want. But when you begin to read this, you understand, okay. The psalmist is just like us, you know, living in a world that's hostile, that that they want war against God, right, and against God's people. And so now look at verses 5 to 7 and read this with an understanding of how this applies to us. See yourself as a foreigner, a stranger, a sojourner in America, an anti-Christian nation, you know, no matter what you want to say, right? It used to be a Christian nation, but that's by God's grace alone look at verse 5 this is woe to me right so he's saying woe to me that i sojourn meaning this is not my home my citizenship is not here i sojourn in Meshach, that i dwell temporary i dwell among the tents meaning you might own a home but it's just a tent in the kingdom of god it's temporary like you went camping Right, I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace. And the Hebrew understanding of peace is not just let's not fight. It is this deep understanding of shalom, of wholeness, of good for man and society and good for all mankind because of Yahweh, because of God. But we really... We understand really quickly that that is not the world that we live in. And so he is for shalom. But when, when he speaks, they want war. And you're going to begin to learn that, right? That as Christians, even if we simply say, hey, we are people of peace, and we come to you with a gospel of peace, they will turn around and say, wait, 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 you believe in a gospel? We want war. Right? No, 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 but we want peace. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, but but, but no. You know, it's okay that you believe in what you believe in. Just let us be the church. No, 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 you can't even be the church. That's the world we live in. Right? That's a, why is it so offensive? It's the idea of lordship. Because when we preach the gospel and people say, what does that mean? It's not just, oh, I believe intellectually, intellectual assent. I believe in a concept of Jesus Christ, that he died and rose again, and okay, I'm going to heaven and I go to church once a week, and I'm going to heaven. That's not what it is. Discipleship means we begin to learn what it means to surrender our entire life to Christ. And guys, we know that's hard. And when you tell people that Jesus wants to be king over your heart, and your decisions, and your freedom, and your calendar, and your will, that is offensive to people, and they don't want it. And so apart from the power of the constant work of the Holy Spirit working in us, people do not want Christ as Lord. And that's what makes for war. They want war even if we want shalom and peace. I want you to understand why the psalmist is giving you this idea. What is Meshach? It's a cool name, but Meshach is located on the far north on the shores of the Black Sea. Where do we learn about Meshach? If you Google Meshach, you're gonna get Ezekiel 38, 2 3. And what we need to know as New Testament interpreters of the Old Testament is that Meshach is code language for enemies of God. Okay, so notice what it says. Ezekiel 38, 2 3, what I put over which I put overhead for you. It says, Son of man, set your face toward Gog the land of Magog, and in the book of Revelation, these are enemies of God's people, and the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O God, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. So these are enemies of God, right? Then what's Kedar? Well, Kedar is in Ezekiel 27, 21. Kedar, and that's what what it says in Ezekiel 21 is, Arabia and all the princes of Kedar were your favored dealers in lambs, rams, and goats. And in these, they did business with you. And in the context of Ezekiel 27, it is a lament against the unbelieving world. So the mention back in our passage of Kedar and Meshach together meant It represented the Gentile nations who are against Yahweh and against God. And so it really doesn't matter the exact location of the Psalmist sojourning. So if you're like, where was he geographically? It really doesn't matter because this represents all Christians and all Old Testament saints. Wherever we are, this is not our home. And that's why I really appreciate our brother Gabe, pastoral intern Gabe's sermon on ambassadors of Christ. Beloved, we understand that every local church is an embassy, and that's where we can find refuge, and that's where we we get sent back out, though. But we are really ambassadors representing the kingdom, and we're we're, we're spread out, and we're representing the king, but we're never in our homeland, right? And so that, that challenges us. Have we become too comfortable? Have we become too comfortable in our world? Do we face persecution at all? And I'm not saying go out there and look for persecution. Don't go out there and start a fight. That would be foolish. But that's when we begin to realize more and more we need to be everyday missionaries. The missionary understands that he's in a foreign land. The missionary understands that he needs to go the extra mile to understand the antagonism that he or she might be against. The Missionary understands that his job is not to get swept away by the culture, but to understand the culture. You see, there's a difference between being swept into the consumeristic, materialistic comforts of the American dream versus understanding it. And when you begin understanding it, you understand where you may have bondage to it and the Lord begins to free you. But then you begin to say, okay, how can I shepherd, guide, counsel, and disciple others of, of the reason why they're so depressed, stressed, anxious is because they've yoked their hearts to success defined by parameters of secular society. And maybe it's, it's, it's material success or secular success or power. And when they're not getting these things, they become so stressed that it's anxious, anxiety, and it crushes them when the answer is Jesus. Beloved, this is personal for me. You know, I'm, I'm looking at our growing church, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the number of staff that we have, and I'm looking at the demand, right? And when I say growing, it's not like we're exploding in numbers, but when you have new people coming in. And a year ago, I didn't understand how to do this. So I was like, I had a paradigm of success comparing to other healthy white churches, if you will saying, look at all the organizational systems of shepherding that they have. And I'm looking at not the, 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 the health and wealth churches, but the healthy Bible churches. And I'm like, like, look at all the staff that they have, and look at all the organizational systems that they have, and look at how easy it is for them to get into community groups and all this. And I was comparing to this model of success. And I had to realize, well, no, 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 no. Who has Jesus called us to? You know, what is our church uniquely? What do we have? And, 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 and this is what I'm learning That a lot of what I'm learning in terms of church organization may not apply to our cultural context of multiculturalism here in a Chinese heritage church, but where our English congregation, you know, there's many non-Chinese in here, right? And when I say that, I mean, you know, Indonesian Chinese, you know, Malaysian Chinese, Korean, Vietnamese background, or, or, or white or, or African American, you know, we, or Hispanic, we have a mix. So it's not the same. And I'm learning, and and we don't have answers. But I found myself trapped, and I was anxious and semi-depressed and didn't know how to deal with things. And and what was the problem is that I wasn't looking to God. I wasn't looking to Christ. I was comparing the model of ministry success to well-organized churches. And when things aren't as organized as we want them to, it doesn't mean that we're not being faithful. Because if we're trying to really do disciple-making, it's going to be messy, and you can't cookie-cutter it and put it on an Excel file. That's not how—again, try, try to put your marriage onto an Excel file. I've, I, I'm a very systematic the, theological guy, and I, I wish there was a book that says, talk to your wife in this way, listen at this time, you know, plan these vacations, go here and there, and I'm just not that way. All right, and so, so this is a, a message that I need more than anything, and I believe we all need. And this is the prayer. Okay? Is it's O Lord, deliver us from worldly lies and hostility. That's the big idea. That's the main point of this morning's message. In the original context, it's O Yahweh, O Lord, deliver us from worldly lies and hostility. But in a New Testament context, it's O Christ. Our Lord Christ, deliver us from from sin, from worldly lies, and and deliver us by teaching us how to live among hostility. And there's only one way to do that is by surrendering to Jesus Christ as our Lord. And, and, and what this looks like for me and you is to understand the heart of First Peter. First Peter refers to Christians as strangers and sojourners in a foreign land. We are strangers. We are aliens in this world. This world's not our home. We are on this pilgrim's progress, if you will. And it's necessary to understand how the Psalms are designed to shape our emotions. The Psalms have been medicine to me. I have to give you a confession. As I was going through this, you know, our church is growing. We had pastors transition out, all the administrative types. I'm not administrative, you know. How are we going to do this thing? I, was, I actually was talking to our pastor saying, I, I think I need to go to counseling. I don't know how to deal with this anxiety. And, you know, I think someone wisely, I think it was Gabe, actually, or someone said, why don't you read the Psalms? I said, like, oh, yeah, okay. You know, I should be telling you that, and I should know this. And I started reading the Psalms, and I Googled, you know, always do this, John Piper's understanding of the Psalms. <laughs> Something like that. John MacArthur's under. Oh, he doesn't say anything about the Psalms. Okay. John, you, you, You'll get that joke, is that he just preaches through the New Testament. But I see John Piper's understanding of the Psalms. And, and Piper explained it this way. Let me, let me just give you a paraphrase, right? And, and I didn't put it up because I'm paraphrasing it, right? He says, the psalms were meant to be read as songs and poetry. You see various musical terms throughout the psalms. And in this sense, the psalms are designed not just to inform our minds, but to move our hearts. Which means the psalms invades the messiness of our anxiety and our distress and our disorganization. And the psalms are a guide to our emotions. The psalms help us express our feelings to God, and they help to shape our emotions. And Piper says is quote, frees up our emotions and explodes them and kills them where they should be killed, end quote. And so what Piper is saying is, the Psalms tells us that it's okay to cry out and and share our stress and our messiness to God. But then if, if we constantly live in that, Then our, our emotions dictate us and it destroys us. So what the Psalms does, it it says, no, don't suppress your anxiety and your emotions. Cry out to God. He understands. Cry out to Him like the Psalmist. Oh Lord, deliver me from this distress. I'm surrounded by lies and hostility. I mean, that's pretty, that's a pretty emotional cry. That's what the Psalms do for you, right? It allows you to explode your emotions because God created us to explode healthy emotions of worship, but the fall of man and sin has distorted our emotions. But yet, you know what the Psalms does for us? It regulates our emotions. It says you want to let them explode, but you want to rein them back in because Jesus is Lord. And you notice the psalmist helps you do that. So if any of you are going through um, any type of emotional distress, anxiety, uh, or, or anything of that sort, read the Psalms. The Psalms are really a bomb to the soul. And it also, worship leaders will love the psalms too, because that's what worship songs do. And when you sing, it, it, it goes from the head into the heart. Something about music. I can't sing, you know, but, but, but when I try to sing, you know, it, it basically helps me to connect the head and the heart. The theology gets set on fire. Someone said that. Was it Martin Lloyd-Jones or Charles Spurgeon said, the hymns are like, song, like theology on fire. And so we can know things about God, but it's, it's music and song, like the Psalms, poetry, creative things, things that I'm not good at, right? That, that basically help us to say, look, you're not in control. God is. And He's giving you an instrument to give you a theology of emotions, which are the Psalms. And so when you look at Psalms, Psalm 120, it allows us to express stress. God, it breaks my heart every time I hear about a school shooting. I'm giving you an example. Please, Lord, help me not to be jaded by this. Lord, uh, you know, there's terrorism and I'm afraid. Help me, Lord, not to be angry or become even racist because of this terrorism around me. Lord, Lord, there's so many lies or God, God, this person doesn't understand. That person understands or, or family's heart. God, help me, right? And so you began to express yourself to God in terms of worldly lies and hostility, God guarding you. But then you submit. You say, Lord, but I know that you are Lord. And I know that as long as I'm going one step at a time towards you, everything's going to be okay because that's what disciple making looks like. Beloved, if you don't have Christ this morning, Jesus is the answer. He is the answer to what we need. And so if you don't have Christ, Jesus Christ came, he died, and he rose for your sin. Please come talk to us. You can receive Christ today okay please come talk to us we'd love to guide you in surrendering your life to christ let's pray father we come before you we come before you lord as people who don't have it all together lord and we realize that you want us that way because you are the one that puts us back together lord sometimes you let us hit rock bottom as one preacher said so that we can realize and learn that you are the rock at the bottom. Lord, we pray that you would be the rock of our salvation, our Lord, the Lord of our emotions, our heart, our mind, our decisions, and our actions. Lord, if there's anybody in here this morning who does not have Jesus, I pray that you would meet them where they are at, that you would sanctify them, that you would draw them to you, Lord, through the power of the Spirit, that they would come to see that the truth of the gospel will set them free in Christ Jesus. And for those of us who are trying hard to follow Jesus, but we're struggling with life and sin, Lord, I pray that you would guide us, remind us how desperately we need you as our shepherd, and take us day by day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.